For seven weeks throughout October and November, Erica and I will be traveling across the U.S. recording a web series called Untethered on the Road, sponsored by portable power company Tilt, T-Y-L-T. You can follow along by checking into Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Tilt Products, that's T-Y-L-T, or head to Tilt.com. And be sure to come back later in the year at Tilt Products on YouTube and check out the video web series following our adventures across the country. And now we return to your regularly scheduled programming. Hashtag live untethered. Welcome to episode 41 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. I am coming to you from northern Florida right now. Eric and I are still traveling across the U.S. We are heading into week seven, and we are coming close to the end of our travels. If you'd like to follow along, head to any of the popular social medias such as Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and look for hashtag LiveUntethered, hashtag ChinnyRoad2016, or for Chinnigan, F-O-U-R-C-H-I-N-N-I-G-A-N, or HG Kitty Cat, Kitty with a K, Cat with a K. And then you can follow along with the photos and updates that we've been making, usually daily. On today's show, we have David Angel, lover of red t-shirts, caver, mine explorer, canyoneer, adventurer, photographer, host of RopeWiki.com, aerial bartender, and all-around good radio voice guy. He and I talk about all of those things, but also some topics that don't come up on this show very often, including how to handle the situation where... A person dies when you're in the outdoors and what it's like to deal with the death after that has occurred. A quick note, David mentions the tag region. And for those not familiar with caving in the U.S., that is the Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia area, which is known for a lot of fantastic caves. So come along with me to the LSA pothole and let's talk to David Angel. So my name is David Angel. I am a caver, a mine explorer, a canyoneer. I do geeky computery things to make a living. I do a little wedding photography. I get outside. Oh wow! Look at that! Look at look at how you bring it back. Advertise the show for me. You did something that no one else who's been on this show has done before, which is when I asked you what location we should record in, you said, "Hey, let's do it here," which means that we had to run a canyon and hike up 
side of a mountain for a couple hours. So why don't you tell the audience where we are and why we are here? So we are in Little Santa Anita Canyon in the infamous pothole that is uh, currently a keeper pothole. It's about a six foot climb out of here and you normally need some help unless you're a strong climber. I have an affection for this particular canyon. Uh, I've run it many, many times and it's so fun when there's water in it. And right now it's just so dry that we're covered in sweat and hiking through this thing is, I would say, relatively miserable. We've made lots of good memories in this pothole. Alden likes to have potlucks here. So this is the potluck pothole. I think it's going to be a little different the next time we try to have a potluck here. It's now a slope, thanks to another buddy of ours. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. It's not all that pleasant for recording podcasts in because it slopes downhill. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm absolutely comfortable and feel absolutely pleasant. (laughs) So we're going to make it work. You you also have a particular thing that you're well known for at these potlucks, in this pothole in particular. So for a while, I was super obsessed with mixing drinks. And I came up with this idea, or someone came up with this idea. We needed an aerial bartender to rappel down almost all the way into the potluck and start handing out drinks from on rope. And usually one of my rules for being on rope is is never ever to mix alcohol with it. But this is a, a notable exception, I guess. And now the general public knows about it. So you've lost all respectability. Yeah, I, w- I will say I, I typically don't drink while I'm mixing on rope. So there's that. But I do hand out drinks and it's, it's a lot of fun. So there's this thing in the bartending world called bullshit. And if you mix up a drink for the most part ahead of time, it's called bullshit. So I bring a bunch of bullshit into the canyon, mix it up in Nalgene's, and I discovered that mixing drink is just not the same if you don't have one of those uh, metallic, you know, metal uh, shakers. So you have to pour the bullshit into the shaker and start passing it out that way. And if people hear that sound, that sound is just like, there's a bartender here, and look, he's on rope, and you can hand out your drinks, and everybody loves it. Do people call it bullshit because it's considered less respectable to mix things ahead of time? Total cheating, yeah. So then you've lost respect in the canyoneering community for (laughs) mixing drinks on rope, and you've lost respect in the cocktail community. This is something that's done in the industry. Even really, really fancy bars that serve only drinks will do this all the time. And so honestly, sometimes it's hard to, you know, mix 80 ingredients in a canyon. Nobody wants that much glass in your pack. Yeah, I mean, I would I would argue that what you do is already um, <laughs> is already enough work as it is. I wonder if I'm the only one. Has anyone else ever bartended from rope? I would imagine you probably are not. And <laughs> I imagine there are probably... We're going to have to look it up. Yeah, there's well, probably some sort of... That'll be in the of, show notes. <laughs> there's probably some sort of Vegas show you can go to or something where they have people doing acro... Acro drink mixing. Drink mixing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have verified that you're an alcoholic who does questionable things on rope. Favorite drink? Gershwin. Look it up. Fantastic drink. I recommend it highly. Let's talk about outside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and by the way, people, we don't have any of his mixed drinks tonight. We will have some recipes in the show notes, though. Oh, are you you going to provide recipes? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Cool. Okay, so yeah, check the show notes. This may be the first time for some people that they ever go to the website and check the show notes just to get your Gershwin recipe. So I got into the outside. By sitting on the internet, I was just obsessed with this website I found that had pictures of the abandoned Niagara Falls Power Company tail race, which is the the effluent of the, the dam. Pictures of this dam were just so incredible. They had infiltrated this place and taken pictures with gels and flashes and mind-blowing pictures. And I asked a buddy, hey, how do I get into this? 
how do we find one of these things? And he says, there ain't none of that around here. But we have mines. We could go explore some abandoned mines. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty cool. We went off to the Bighorn Mine, which is a abandoned mine in the hills of Los Angeles, up at about, I think it's like six or 7,000 feet on the slopes of Mount Baden-Powell. It's a old gold mine. It traded hands a few times, and the Forest Service keeps trying to gate it, and then the locals come along and open it up the next day with thermite and explosives or something to that effect. Yeah, that's the one that has like a big gate over it, and you could almost squeeze through, but not quite. There's right. like three different gates that, that I've ever seen. And the next time you go, somebody's breached another one. Um, yeah, it's got a big culvert. And then there's bars going across that. And then there's concrete going around the culvert. And, you know, somebody will bring a sledgehammer, bust through the concrete, then torch their way into the culvert, and then torch their way past the bars and get into this mine, which is really for that amount of effort, maybe not worth it. Yeah, I was going to ask, is this mine even that good? It's, I mean, it's the queen of LA gold mines. And that's what, what Hugh Blanchard wrote in his, his most amazing website, lagoldmines.com. He wrote a, a just a grocery list of, of mines in the LA area and really ticked them off the list and, and was the person that did a lot of the work in rediscovering these things and exploring them and, and publishing the information, which allowed me to use it as a list of, well things to go check out which is i guess how we all start to get into trouble is thanks to the internet basically the is, internet helps is, you get in trouble. yeah the the internet giveth and the internet taketh away maybe we'll get into that later with the the protection of caves and and raging against that machine and why these things are so secretive and why they need to be protected mines just don't have that same level of conservation depending on who you talk to it's it's a good thing for for people to kind of cut their teeth on and not worry too much about the conservation aspect you know you can publish what you did this weekend and not feel bad about it sometimes i discovered southern california grotto these guys are at first glance pretty geeky and unassuming and then you get to know them and those people who were were unassuming suddenly become expedition cavers who spend a week underground and you had no idea and and certainly no idea from looking at them how just badass these guys are so my first trip with socal grotto was up to a place called the castec mine and this trip kind of went down in infamy um, because it was the trip that hugh blanchard the author of la gold mines uh he he died on this trip. So my first trip with the grotto was Hugh's last trip with the grotto. He, um, he unfortunately fell down a, a muddy slope, which ended in a 20 or 30 foot rappel without rope. And uh, he landed on his feet, did a pretty good job of, uh, of protecting himself. But then, uh, as far as I could tell, fell over, hit his head on a rock, and, uh, and the helicopter arrived shortly later. Were you there when it happened, I or was, were you elsewhere? Yeah, I the... was. I did not see it happen. Um, nobody saw it happen. We were all around the corner um, trying to find our way into the lower adit, which, as far as I know, nobody's gotten into uh, since Hugh. Uh, we were going back to fully explore it. When Hugh got into it, he didn't have a light. It's it's a very exposed traverse across to a little adit in the side of a hill that, you know, is 40 feet off the ground. And everybody who gets there just looks at it and says, that's spooky. I need some pro. My only thought is go out there with a bush anchor and knock that one off the list one day. So what was that like? Because if it was your first time, you have all those mixed emotions of like, this is kind of exciting. This is kind of scary. 
I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure of my skills yet. Mixed with then suddenly a tragedy occurs. It's a little of all those things. You know, you, you're, you're already pushed your limits. The scree slopes are, are really steep and you're exhausted. And then all of a sudden this, this, uh, <laughs> this tragedy happens. And, you know, honestly, my first thought was really, really selfish. I was like, why is this happening to me? After three seconds, I got over that pretty quick and said, okay, you know, what can we do to fix this? And luckily there were so many skilled people who had medical and rescue training that my complete inexperience didn't turn out to be an issue. It was a weird thing suddenly being confronted with like, hey, this these hikes that I'm going on, which are turning more and more serious, are suddenly, wow, this this is serious business and I need to carefully assess whether I want to keep doing this. And the answer was yes. I love exploring more than more than anything. Yeah, you you have to carefully consider. I see an incident every three or four months where something happens in my sphere sphere of influence. And usually it it isn't related to anything I've done, but you know, you just see it happen and you're like, this could have been me. This could have been worse. Yeah, there's there's been a few um, just terrible things that have happened to me throughout my adventuring career that, you know, doesn't typically happen on the 405, although it's probably more dangerous. For people that don't know, that's a super populated freeway slash interstate in Los Angeles, the 405. The most dangerous thing about a cave rescue is the drive home. That's what they say about everything. That's what they say about skydiving. That's, <laughs> that's what they say about everything except base jumping. <laughs> the most dangerous thing about base jumping is base jumping. Let's talk about this a little more then, because that's that's something I didn't know about you. I didn't know that that happened. I'd, actually, I didn't know the story about that at all, but much less that that happened to you on your very first trip with the grotto, because I could see where that absolutely could scare you away from it entirely. And it sounds like you did think about that a little bit and then came back around. Do you think seeing the grotto members in action helped reassure you? Absolutely. You know, seeing people who know how to react in that situation is going to be like, okay, well, you know, I could go out with these people because they're way safer than a lot of the folks you could explore with. And you should always try to gravitate to those people outdoors if you're going to be doing this stuff. I guess we should back up. So a grotto is a caving club. Southern California Grotto is a caving club in and around uh, greater Los Angeles. There are a few of these. Uh, there's there's a San Diego Grotto. There's an Orange County Grotto, which is called the uh, Desert Dogs. Grottos are amazing resources for people that want to grow in in any sort of vertical endeavor but especially caving because they have been around so long and are are so rich in talent and history they're they're really good resources for you know just learning how to get on rope and learning how to how to safely ascend and descend rope and that's that's how i learned to uh, repel and ascend is is from the cavers and i was lucky to have uh, some very skilled teachers who for free would you know volunteer their time and go outside with us and be like here's a rope here's how it works here's how you can kill yourself in 18 different ways don't do those here's how you can traverse lips and add friction and tie knots and here's the materials and the science behind it so many things that like you would you normally have to pay you know, hundreds of dollars in a class to, to get that kind of training and Grotto's just handed out for free. You know, you can, you can become a member of these, these clubs for a year for pennies, you know, a month and they'll take you out and, and show you these things because 
they just want friends to go caving with. Let's talk about why grottos need to exist because a lot of activities, like if you want to get into hiking or climbing, you don't necessarily need to join a club. You just need to learn how to do the activity and then go off with your friends and do it. But grottos serve a greater purpose because caves are kind of a different environment entirely than the world above. Caving's dangerous. We all have the the picture of the the quintessential cave squeeze in our head right now and thinking like, oh, that's, yeah, that gives me the the shivers. Heck, it scares me. They deserve a certain amount of respect and training and conservation. We all have these beautiful things in our head and and that's usually, you know, the those beautiful formations are, are usually marred by humans. We do what we can to protect them and conserve them and in some cases do restorations on them or gate them the the cavers by and large do this as volunteer work because they love the caves so much and the small creatures that inhabit them that they're willing to gate a cave that they would love to have access to or you know clean up a cave that people have trashed yeah cavers are are so skilled in so many ways and they all have little specialties that Every, everybody's got their specialty where they can come along and be like, oh, I know who's good at this. I know the guy who can build a cave gate or I know the guy who takes the most amazing photos underground or is an expert at cave rescue. And we, we breed that, that community. What do you think it is about caves that kind of attracts you to them? Because there's so many other activities that you already participate in and so many other things you could do. But, but I do often think of you as a caver, kind of first and foremost, so what is it about caves that you like so much? I guess if we back up a little, I first started with mines because that's what we have in Los Angeles. There are so many mines in Los Angeles. You know, it's one of the reasons LA is on the map. Any road in the desert is going to take you out to a mine. And I started exploring those and I was I was th- so thrilled with the history and wondering, like, how did these guys mine this? Like, what were the processes they used? What were they digging out? How long did it take them? You know, what did they have to build to do that? And at some point, after discovering the grotto, you know, they were like, hey, let's go to a cave. And and caves are a little different. There's there's no human history in a cave necessarily. So it's it's more about the sport and the beauty. And as a photographer, obviously I was interested in the beauty and taking pictures and running some video of of you know what it's like to be a cave explorer. Only recently in the last few years did I really start to embrace the sport of caving and and really start to get used to, oh, hey, it can be a lot of fun to climb up this gnarly passage or do some squeeze that gives you the butterflies. Oh, let's let's dig out this passage so I'll fit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lay off the cookies, man. (laughs) So you joined the grotto. When would that have been that you went with them on that first trip? How long has it been now? That's got to be 2008. Okay, so about eight years ago. Because you could just join the grotto and be a member and show up to meetings from time to time, but you became much more involved with the grotto than that, didn't you? Yeah. If you're participating in trips and hanging out, all you really have to do is show up once a month and be friendly. Eventually, they're going to say, hey, do you want to join the board? If you've been on board before, you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. I could, you know, help steer this organization. And if you haven't, it still kind of sounds like fun. So... Yeah, I, uh, I was on the board, and then maybe a year or two later, I ended up in the, the chair position, kind of steering the the board. And so what would you do as a board member in a grotto, as a volunteer, to remind everybody, this is you volunteering your time to do this. So not only are you participating in the club, but now you're also guiding aspects of it. So a lot of what I do is 
is outreach and trying to keep the club alive in the way that you see that it could be failing to stay relevant. I will contact people from the NSS who have moved to Los Angeles and be like, hey, I see you moved to LA. Do you want to come join us? And you know, sometimes they will. Other times you're like, oh, hey, there's this thing called Facebook. And in 2008, you know, like not everybody was on Facebook. And so it was like, hey, let's make a Facebook group. You'd even get questions about that. Like, do we really need one? Well, no, but let's make one and see how it works. You know, just taking electronic payments back in the day. Like that was something that needed to be done. And I was like, hey, let's set up a PayPal. So normal everyday things that you just have to to be ahead of the curve and bring people. So basically you liked caving enough to do the non-fun stuff to help make caving better for everyone. <laughs> Sometimes you get to play psychiatrist and you you bring new friends into the club and they start saying, hey, why are these caves so protected? And why won't somebody tell me where this cave is? And they they understand you know, we're trying to conserve these things and keep them a secret. It's not that we're worried about the person we're telling. It's it's that we're worried that the, the information will disseminate down, you know, three levels deeper and, you know, somebody's going to show up with their spray paint, their rock hammer. I imagine part of it, too, is just a concern of people without the right level of experience then becoming people you need to go into that cave and rescue. There's a bit of that, too. Yeah, you, you hear that story at least once a year in California where somebody, you know, went hand over hand down a rope and then couldn't get back up it. Luckily, we have a cave and technical rescue team that is called upon in situations like that. And those guys are amazing and show up and pull these guys out of caves and mines. You were telling me while we were running through this canyon for a couple of hours about some recent cave rescue stuff that uh you dealt with you want to talk about that some yeah and maybe your postpartum depression too i am i am so depressed right now i attended as a assistant instructor a national cave rescue commission level one training class which is essentially cave rescuers teaching people how to do cave rescue for a week you get about 100 hours of training over the course of that week and make friends for the rest of your life you rescue people from caves and learn how to operate within the function of a cave rescue and fulfilling certain tasks within that. It is just one of the most amazing weeks that you can spend on this planet as far as I'm concerned. And leaving a situation like that where you're required to be functioning at such a high level and putting out so much physical output at the same time you have to really be thinking about what you're doing is is just exhausting but so rewarding at the same time. I really can't recommend the NCRC enough to anybody who's interested in learning how to do cave rescue. Leaving that just a day later, like the homesickness or postpartum depression or whatever you want to call it just hits you. And you're like, oh, man, I miss these people so much. And they're all so amazingly skilled. Even even the students, you know, the adults take this class, you know, not just kids usually not kids. And and the the people who are students in this class are just all so spectacularly talented. And half of them are researchers, you know, they're hydrologists and bat researchers. And um, the other half are like, you know, badass caver, expedition cavers, photographers and scientists. And oh, man. So yeah, it's, it's just so fun to learn about these people at the same time you're you're teaching them how to be better at the thing they do. The NCRC is not a rescue 
organization or a, or a, or a search and rescue team. They're a, the training branch for Cave Rescue of the NSS, and were commissioned to teach Cave Rescue because we were finding that cavers were participating in most of the cave rescues. And in Los Angeles, where we are right now, there's you know not a whole lot of underground rescue that goes on, but in the the east, especially in the the tag region, there there are lots more rescues and. This is uh, something that has disseminated outward and become something that's taught kind of nationwide. There's a national class that goes on once a year. Uh, this year is going to be in Bend, Oregon. There's essentially four levels of classes that you can take, which you know will, will fit your particular amount of training. You can apply to become an instructor, and they have an instructor class where they'll teach you to teach cave rescue. Uh, that's the the step that I am hoping to apply to. It's um I'm I'm kind of stuck in this purgatory right now between uh, having taken the level three class and not being an instructor. So I would need to apply to the IQ class, the instructor qualification class, and hopefully get in. We'll see how that goes. If not, there's a fun with ropes class that that sounds like a blast I'll say uh, fun with ropes class. yeah you know setting up high lines across okay, gorges okay. and because the the name makes it sound like when you would go to some sort of festival and there would be like all this technical caving courses and then they're like well we've got enough space left over let's make a course for the kids the fun with ropes where they go to the playground and just swing on the ropes for a little while yeah, okay so i should have called it technical field operations and uh what that else? sounds a little more <laughs> respectable something like that yeah (laughs) so you did another thing that no one else that comes on the show ever does which is about half an hour before we were supposed to meet you sent me an outline of topics (laughs) that you would like to talk about and i have that outline here and we've already talked about some of these things but are there particular things on here that you're just itching to talk about? Because the fact that you took the time to put this together, I'd like to respect that and give you the opportunity to discuss these things. So I guess this happens to everybody at some point, but I lost a friend who was so special and we did almost everything outdoors together. Uh, So my buddy Kevin, uh, we had explored many mines and caves together and I was just starting to get into canyoneering, and he was also um, uh, deciding finally that, you know, maybe his knee would be cooperating and he could start doing some of these harder canyons. And uh, he went with some friends to Seven Teacups, which is a very popular canyon in the Southern Sierras that I see a lot of people going to. Him and his buddies, uh, you know, finished Seven Teacups, had no problems, and then decided to float down the that fork of the Kern. For for people who don't know, Seven Teacups is this little tributary canyon that empties into the Kern River, which is a whitewater river. And and for the most part, especially in low water, which it was, it's a um, relatively flat water experience. And they decided that you know, hey, let's let's float down this thing and. Um, unfortunately they had no idea that there was a small, um, section of that river that's class five, you know, they were relatively buoyant and in their wetsuits and had buoyant backpacks. And unfortunately, uh, Kevin went over the, the falls. He didn't have time to get out. He fell about, you know, a few feet and ended up in a recirculator and, um, they couldn't get him out and there was no way to get to him. And uh, it's it's interesting what a small world it is, because later 
in an NCRC, in my first NCRC level one class, I met the first responder who responded to Kevin drowning in the river. And so it's, so it's interesting how, as you get more, more deeply entrenched in this world, how it kind of comes full circle. And it's like this, you know, this search and rescue BLM ranger who, who is amazing is suddenly in one of the classes that I was taking. He was interested in cave rescue too. Yeah, and unfortunately, Kevin drowned in the river that day. And my advice to anybody going in seven teacups is do not float down the river. I uh, believe you gave me that <laughs> advice on Facebook uh, at I, some point. Yeah, yeah I, I guess that's one of those things that um, if you are a canyoneer long enough, you, you start to see this repetition. And every year you get one more stage removed from it. So... You know, uh, your buddy dies in the river, and then the next year you're like, everybody, stay out of the river. You're going to die. It's a class five. And then the year after that, you see somebody else dying in the river and somebody else saying, hey, everybody, please be very careful in these classy conditions. (laughs) And eventually you get three or four like years removed from from this but you still see the people who who were learning to canyoneer after you start warning people and be like oh all these people are gonna die in the river and uh or or in this one particular dangerous spot in this class c whitewater canyon and it's at some point it comes kind of amusing (laughs) to to see the the people who you were worried about warn other people about these terrible canyons (laughs) Yeah, so I lost my best buddy and adventure friend, and that was really sad. And sometimes I feel like I've had a hard time getting closer to people I adventure with for that reason. I feel like, you know, kind of unconsciously I'll, I'll protect myself from getting too close to these people. Um, even though, you know, I'm, I'm super vastly in love with all the people I adventure with, and I think they're amazing people, I, I think I still protect myself emotionally sometimes from getting in that situation again, whether I want to or not. Yeah, I could see where that would be tough because you, you you deal with all the grief and everything that you regularly deal with. Then it comes up again when you least expect it, probably. Like, I imagine months later, you're like, oh, this thing looks cool. I should go, I should call Kevin so we can go do this and then remind yourself again. Like, that's a thing you can't do ever again. So it's funny you should say that. The weekend after he died, I got on a trip to a fantastic cave and decided that he would want me to go see that cave. And so I went. I saw some of the most beautiful things and and had a good cry about it at the bottom of that cave when I was on my own. But that happened. It hit me again this weekend for the first time since that, where I I was just wandering down this massive borehole in Lava Beds National Monument where we had done the cave rescue practice training seminar. And I was wandering down this passage and all of a sudden it just hit me how much Kevin would have loved this lava tube borehole. And I just started crying. And sometimes, yeah, it'll hit you at the weirdest times. And out of nowhere, if you'd asked me if that was going to happen, I would have said, absolutely not. I'm totally fine and over it. And all of a sudden, just, yeah crying yeah sometimes are these just little things you don't know that are still in there like uh my great-grandmother died how long has it been now like 10 years ago and i was super close to her and little things will just trigger 
I'll think like, oh, it's been 10 years. I'm done. I'm fine with that. And then just one little thing and just waterworks out of nowhere. It's good. It means, it means they were great people when they're around, right? I would imagine some people listening would say, so he went on this caving thing and somebody died. And then his friend drowned. Why does he keep doing these dangerous, crazy things if, if, if he could die, if people could die? What would your reaction be to that? Regardless of the consequences, adventuring and going outside means so much to me. That's not going to get in my way. You know, people drive down the road in their cars every day. And, you know, sometimes that ends really badly. But we still do it. And, you know, adventuring be far less likely to give that up than driving. On a physical level, just kind of evens me out and makes me happier and releases endorphins. But there's a emotional aspect where you're you're striving and discovering and doing things that you didn't think you were capable of. You step outside of the cave and see the sky for the first time in 14 hours, and it's the most amazing feeling. Relief, but also accomplishment. That gets harder and harder to get. You, um, you keep upping the ante. Suddenly completing LSA. I remember the first time I ran LSA, man, I felt like a king at the end of this canyon. And now we're now our big accomplishment is going to be finishing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that earlier. When I was getting into canyoneering, this was one of those where where my friend Carl and I were like, okay, we should we can probably go do LSA now. We we think we have the skills for it. And now this is like a canyon we do before before everybody goes to work in the morning. Or people drag kegs of beer through it and have a big potluck at the end of it. And you keep pointing up, and I keep hearing rock fall. <laughs> it's a good thing we're not wearing helmets right now. We can take time to put our helmets back on if, uh, if we think so, that would be wise. Canyoneering. At some point, this guy named Dominic rappelled into my life. I was standing at the waterfall of Eden Canyon, staring up at it, I think on Super Bowl Sunday or something like that. And this this dude comes rappelling down. And I was like, hey, I know how to rappel. I'm a caver. Ask Is him. that what you said to him? Um, that was what I was thinking. <laughs> okay. And I think at some point I'd seen about I'd seen it on the internet and thought, wow, that looks like a lot of fun, but I don't want to pay all these guys for, for classes. And I was just so fortunate to run into Dominic and Joanna and Jason that you know, I was like, hey, guys, you know, how do I get involved in this? And this is not Jason me. This is a different Jason. You didn't learn anything from me. So anyway, I was, I was just so fortunate to run into Dominic and Joanna running Eden Canyon. I was like, hey, are you guys on the San Gabriel Forum? And they're like, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, me too. And, you know, we became friends and Dominic showed up to the grotto and uh, he took me through my first canyon, which was Allison, which is in the San Gabriel's. It's got a mine at the top of it. The Allison Mine is a fantastic little gold mine in LA County. And you can hike up to the mine, explore the mine, and then rappel down the canyon, which is just fantastic. And so Dominic took me through my first canyon, and one thing led to another. Suddenly I was doing heaps in Zion and jumping the Sierras, upper natural bridge in Death Valley. Just uh, He drug me through all sorts of canyons, and I'm just forever in his debt for for showing me the the techniques that normally I think you'd have to pay somebody 400 bucks to learn but yeah that was a 
gateway drug for me into canyoneering just or you you acquire so many interesting tools when you both canyoneer and cave and mine explore you can you can take your toolbox and apply it to the other thing that you're doing and be like oh so i learned how to really repel in canyons and then uh, then you look great when you're you're cave exploring and know how to actually repel and uh and vice versa you know the cavers will teach you how to ascend like pro and and so the the cave training really taught me to always be ready to turn around at a moment's notice on rope and head back up if you have to you know you start applying all these tools to the other the other vertical endeavor you're into and it's really rewarding. And just like with caving, you got into canyoneering and you thought, well, it's not just enough to do this. I need to somehow get more involved in the community. So, so tell me about RopeWiki. So Ben Ben came along at some point and said, hey, I registered this domain. How do we make it into a website? And I was like, oh, well, you know, let's just uh, throw it on my server and see what happens. And I think the funniest thing about RopeWiki is, is how much negativity we got about the name at the beginning. Now it's a household name. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's just the name of the site. And it's got it's got brain trust in everybody's head now. But originally, everybody was like, this is a terrible name. We should call it canyon wiki or and that was taken by the way um or we should we should call it beta canyon wiki or something to that effect and and really you know i i think the name was fine so yeah, I'm that's the- funny because i have never once thought like oh this is a weird name <laughs> and also you oh you guys kind of did yourself a favor because you didn't limit yourself it doesn't just have to be canyoneering beta and and that's what i loved about the name and that was always what i was telling ben i was like hey this is a great name and you know don't let the people who tell you otherwise um, convince you of that. Yeah, so a little background if you didn't catch some of the other podcasts. Uh, RopeWiki is mainly administered by myself. I'm the system administrator. Ben Pelletier is uh, kind of a front-end slash, I don't know, how would how would Ben describe himself? However uh, he would describe it, it would be far more eloquently than yeah. either you or I will. <laughs> well, well, Ben's the magician, and then um, <laughs> Luca, Luca is the guy in the trenches writing all sorts of ridiculous scripts to, to make it work its magic. I, I really have to, I can't stress enough how much Luca has contributed to RopeWiki. It is, it is really his baby in so many ways, and he's, he's done so many amazing things for the site. All I do is make sure the backups run. Um, you're the dad who makes sure that. Uh, well, I, I that, guess I that wait, the wait, wait, wait. I t- is available for people to go to. I take it back. I also pay the bills. <laughs> okay, so see, yeah, so you're the dad. Yeah, you're the dad that pays for the website and makes sure <laughs> people can access the website. Yeah, so then we have this fantastic little canyon website, and all we do is, uh, you know, convince people to use it. I make it a habit actually to write. Uh, the contributors every once in a while and they've done an especially good job and pat them on the back and be like, hey man, nobody could have written that beta like you did. And and, and honestly, nobody could have because these guys are, are the best there is and they're out there every weekend doing just these insane things and then writing about it for other people out of the kindness of their heart. It's mind-blowing. So when I got into canyoneering, basically all the beta in this area was either old Chris Brennan beta from years ago from a book he had published or some very minimal beta from ATS or, you know, you buy books for all the different areas. And RopeWiki in the last few years has kind of blown up to where it's basically anytime I'm looking for beta, the first place I go is RopeWiki. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about it is it aggregates the stuff that's already out there. And then secondarily, yeah, we... 
we usually have some sort of information on the site itself. But yeah, it's a good place to go for, you know, just seeing what's out there, who's linked to what. Also, I like to harp on people like, please, 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 whenever you run a canyon, submit a condition report, click on the button. You have to log in. I apologize. But yeah, click on report condition and just type in three words about what the canyon was like and move on with your day because that'll help other people when they go to look at, hey, what's the canyon doing next week? So much. And then it'll cut down on the forum traffic too. Hey, what's this one like? (laughs) So where do you see RopeWiki going? Do you have any plans for it from here? Or just let it do what it's going to do? I don't think there's any doubt it's going to continue to grow and mature and eventually we'll outgrow our bridges and need some bigger boxes and I'll I'll have to upgrade the machines maybe make the ram a little more efficiently used luckily Luca's so good about designing new features by the time I've thought of something awesome he's usually implemented it right now he's he's writing a amazing script that's going to scrape facebook for condition reports and just add them automatically and I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that other amazing things is the the rope wiki explorer which is a uh, google earth plugin which is just fantastic like i i can't urge you enough if you're looking at exploring a new canyon like download this thing stick it into google earth and see what it can do for you it is it's mind-blowing uh right now we get i want to say anywhere from like four to six hundred unique visitors a day um, and because it's a, it's a relatively open site, uh, I'm, you know, totally free with that data. Like, you know, if you're, if you're curious, you know, how many people hit RopeWiki and what their demographics are, just, you know, feel free to stop by the, the RopeWiki Facebook group and ask me and, you know, I'll post information. Also, we, we use a bunch of open source tools to implement the site. So, you know, I use Terraform to set up the machines. I use Ansible to, do the configuration management so most of it's automated you could you know have rope wiki set up on your own machine if you wanted in minutes i guess we haven't really discussed uh making it actually free open source software but it's it's pretty close to that and all the stuff we use is totally free uh, big shout out to media wiki for providing these things that we use and also semantic media wiki which allows us to you know, keep all this stuff in various database forms so it's easy to get at from a scripting point of view. Do you think eventually you'll add cave beta or climbing beta? So Climbing beta is kind of covered. Yeah, I think Nun Project has that totally covered. Uh, Caving is a sensitive subject. Right, because you you don't want to just share all of the information with just anyone, right? Don't get me wrong. RopeWiki has a few caves on it already. They're ones that are open to the public or easily, easily Googleable. But further than that, I don't see I don't see any sort of free open format happening with that. I could I could potentially see some sort of underground trust situation where you are trusted with more and more information as you know we find that somebody is more and more trustworthy. So you know you'd have to have some sort of endorsement system. You know, you could potentially keep all the information on there as long as it was very secure. You know, it would it would be a real shame for the site to get hacked by some new MediaWiki exploit and then have that stuff become totally accessible. So we'd have to protect against that. So here's the big question. It's on your server. Is that server in your house? 
No, that server sits at a big cloud farm in San Francisco. All right, that's good to hear. Yeah. There may be some rumors that RopeWiki could be stolen from your house if somebody <laughs> broke into your house. Really? Not exactly, but, but I have heard people say, oh, it's just on a computer at Dab's house. <laughs> no, I paid good money for that that computer to be at a actual data center. So no, despite all the, the rumor, the violent rumors to the contrary. So don't worry, people out there. You can use RopeWiki. It's not going to get stolen from Dab's house. The backups are at my house. Well, that's all right. As long that's that's off site, right? Thing, yeah, as long as the main thing exists elsewhere. So you're a caver, you're a canyoneer. You even said that you have to keep pushing because the things that were exciting before, you know, become mundane. Where are you heading next? I guess I'm always looking for bigger, batter trips, which is, you know, always the case with, with those of us who, who explore caves and canyons and mines. But then I'm also kind of pushing in other directions like photography, which is something you can always get better at, and and rescue. I like to practice rescue and obsess about it. And I mean, you felt my bag in the canyon today. You're like, what's in here? Yeah, it's pretty heavy. <laughs> um, you know, I carry a bunch of stuff just in case, and it's good to obsess over that stuff and and push yourself and give yourself a little extra weight if you if you can handle it safely. More expedition caving more instruction. I, I love teaching people. I'm obsessed with teaching people rope technique and rescue technique. And I'd, I'd really love to get better at that and learn how to more effectively do that. But then also I, I like leading trips for new people. You know, whenever new people come to our grotto, I'm like, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll teach you rope stuff and then let's go do an easy cave. And I I love seeing people just geek out on on easy caves that I once geek out on, you know, because I, I remember what it's like, too. I know you're talking about because I do that, too, sometimes where I'll take somebody to do some climb or some canyon that I've kind of lost a passion for. And then they remind me like, oh, yeah, this was a really exciting, really awesome thing. And then you can kind of enjoy it again. Yeah, I'm a trustee for two caves in Sequoia which is a, a real privilege. The Sequoia National Park has a cave trustee system. And through training with other trustees, you can become one yourself. You know, after you've demonstrated the technical competence and the conservation concerns that, you know, one would expect from somebody who was allowed the, the keys to the castle, so to speak, you can take other people into this cave and, and train them to be trustees. And I've, I've done that with a cave called Soldier's Cave in Sequoia. I, I taught our buddy Randy to navigate it, and uh, he became a trustee, and that's, that's really exciting. So yeah, you can, you can take people to these caves and, and just watch them totally geek out on like, hey, here's the lake room, and, and oh, hey, here, let's go check out this, this beautiful, beautiful room called the Chapel Room. Oh, they're taking pictures and having an amazing time and you can you can see the their faces when they leave the cave just like wow that was an enormous trip and so much and yeah just get off on seeing them be so happy about something like that 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 yeah quite frankly I've lost and I would I would have a hard time having a hard time in that cave at this point I don't know why I've never had this thought before but uh, it's something that I notice with, with everyone, once they start getting into these things and they do them for kind of a while, they start doing that. They start bringing other people so that other people can have that experience and so they can almost live vicariously through them again, sort of like people do when they have children. And then it allows them to see the world as they did as a child again and remember what was so interesting about the world. So for those of us who don't have kids, 
<laughs> we can take people into caves and climbs and and canyons and things of that sort. Funny that you should bring that up because I've often lamented the the imprint that happens. Okay, so you know, you've been to a cave like 18 times and you're taking a group and then you you make such an impression on these people that you're taking into the cave and and as the the person leading the trip, you may not even remember these people the next time you see them, and and yet you made this huge huge change to their life that would you changed their life, and so they remember you, but you're like, uh, wait, what was your name again? And so they're they're like totally, I, I feel like imprinted on you, and I I always feel so bad when when I'm like, oh oh yeah, that's right, we did do that thing, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. I've done that before too, and you feel terrible afterwards. And then you and then you kind of pretend like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember now. Yeah, even was, though you don't. <laughs> that was super important to me too. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's just one of those traps that you can fall into as as being a, a super experienced person in anything. Is you have to remember what it's like and embrace that, and and remember that you know everybody's feelings are. Are important. The the thing is, it'll happen to you again, right? Because as you progress, there's somebody else above you who's going to do that for you again on something that's more technical than what you've done before or whatever. And then you're going to remember them and they're going to forget you and you'll be back in that place. So remember that new people. Don't take it personally. <laughs> so you mentioned you'd like to do more expedition caving. So talk about that. Tell me about expedition caving. There's a point at which, and it's it's very hard to define, a trip becomes an expedition. And usually it has something to do with misery and carrying lots of stuff. We have a cave in Sequoia, which is one of the the longest caves in the state. And we do science on this cave. And I guess hardship and carrying heavy things are really the the staples of expedition caving. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm like so much of a badass and I'm totally doing this stuff because, you know, we... We hike some heavy stuff down to a cabin and have a good time and then ex- get to explore California's longest cave. These often involve overnights in the caves? Yeah, usually it'll, um, not in the cave, usually you have a chance to come back up out of it, but um, yeah, yeah, sure, expedition caving can be days and days and days, and, and unfortunately I'm not the right person to talk in depth about what it's like to be under underground for eight days. I've, I've never done it. I've slept underground once, and that was because it was raining outside. Yeah, the um, Cave Research Foundation does science on uh, a cave in Sequoia, and they have been studying it for decades now and have so much information and have learned so many things. And it's it's fun to be a part of that and get to participate in water sampling or, you know, changing out the CO2 sensor, even cave mapping, which is is a really complex art form that um, if, if you want to study something for years and years and years and, and still be no good at it, I'd, I'd suggest getting into cave mapping. That, it's really hard. <laughs> I'm always looking for opportunities to do things for a long period of time and not be good at them. But yeah, it's, it's a blast to you know carry all of your gear for the entire weekend, six miles down a hill, and you know get as much cave exploration and science time is in as you can. And then, you know, hike out the same weekend. And I'd call that an expedition if you're underground for two of those days and hiking for three, something like that. Especially in inhospitable caves, you know, the ambient temperature is in the 40s and you're in a big thick cave suit because everything's dripping on you. And, you know, things get inhospitable quick and 
you can run out of calories at a moment's notice and you you have to watch yourself and your teammates and and you know any slip could be potentially very dangerous for for everybody in terms of getting them out safely so what we'll do now that we've talked about your past your present and your future what you expect to do from here on out we'll go ahead and start wrapping it up so is there anything that you would like to leave the audience with that we haven't discussed or maybe something that's on your your outline that you sent me that we haven't talked about i feel like everybody wonders why the name dav it actually isn't a shortening of my name this will be a treat for anybody who stuck it out through this entire podcast. <laughs> this is the only reason anybody listened. So I, so I was 13 and had just discovered the internet and needed a name. And uh, I'd been reading a really embarrassing uh, series of books called Dragonlance. Uh, they're terrible fancy novels. I, I don't recommend them, but 13-year-old me was, was in love with them. If if the author of the Dragonlance novels is listening, he doesn't really mean it. So anyway, Tracy and Margaret, I'm really sorry. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, I chose this name for myself as a as an online persona in uh, fantasy video games, and it was Deventilis. You know, this kind of stuck with me throughout the years, and uh, eventually all my friends online decided that was much too long to type out. It's like 10 characters or something, so they shortened it to Dav, which just happens to also be a shortening of my name. So it kind of stuck, and later in life, um, it it turned out to be useful. I was working in a company where there was a Dave and a David, so I was like, yeah, just call me Dav. You should have asked them to call you Devantilis. Yeah, well. (laughs) So now you should let everyone know which places they should go to get more information because I know you gave me a bunch of links that that you'd like to share with everybody with like caving information and various other things and then places where people can go maybe check out some stuff that you've posted if you post things so definitely check out the show notes all the URLs will be there if you're interested in cave rescue go to ncrc.info if you're interested in the Southern California Grotto go to southerncaliforniagrotto.com if you're interested in Canyon Beta or contributing to any sort of uh, Canyon-related uh, or rope-related things, ropewiki.com. We never talked about wedding photography. <laughs> well, what would you like people to know about your wedding photography? You want people to hire you? Is that what you want? Uh, I, well, and not necessarily. I, I love <laughs> wedding photography. It's, it's you know, I shoot... Really, a, that's interesting because a, a lot of photographers are like, I will shoot anything but weddings. It is one of the hardest things you can do. It is sometimes <laughs> harder than cave or mine exploring or canyoneering it is a really really hard day but it's a blast and as a photographer uh it's so much fun and rewarding in that same way yeah if if you are interested in seeing some of my work uh i work for rnr creative photography or uh, rnrphotography.com if you're interested in those pictures of the uh, ontario power tail race uh, we'll post the link to that uh, also, there was a recent newspaper article about the NCRC class that I helped instruct. That'll be in the show notes as well. If you're interested in seeing some of the short films that I put together with Kevin, then go to Dark Time. That's uh, D-A-R-K-T-I dot M-E. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on the show, dude. Appreciate telling all these fun <laughs> stories. Now we have to uh, put all this stuff away and then figure out how to get out of this pothole (laughs) and then maybe get some sleep. Quick update. 
about David Angel. He has applied to the NCRC Instructor Qualification Course and is awaiting his reply to find out if he has been accepted. He should know early next year. So let's all wish Dav Devantilis luck with pursuing his instructor qualification. And those of you who've listened to the show before, you know what time it is. It's time to go to the website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast, episode 41, David Angel, and take a look at all of the photos that he sent me. Photos in caves, photos in canyons, photos in various places. And a number of links, including links to ropewiki.com, the place to go if you need canyoneering beta in the U.S., links to the Southern California Grotto, links to Dark Time, to R&R Photography, links to the NCRC, the Toronto Power Trail Race, an article specifically about Cave Rescue, and Hugh Blanchard's website. And since you've already dropped everything you were doing so that you could rush over to the website to check those things out, you may as well go ahead and send us a message. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com. Let us know what you think about the show, what you like, what you don't like. All thoughts are welcome, and I promise I always reply to each email, unless it's spam. So if you have ever emailed us and not heard back, I missed it. Send it again. I promise I will reply. But maybe you're not a big fan of the internet. Maybe you prefer technology from an earlier decade. In that case, you can give us a call, 818-925-0106. That would work with your touchtone phone, your rotary dial, or perhaps a telephone. Those old, old telephones like they had on Lassie. And while you're on the internet, run on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you consume this podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show, and... If you do me a great big favor, share the show. Send it to someone you think may enjoy it. Next time on the show, Janine Tidwell. She is one of the founders and instructors at Twin Eagles Wilderness School in Idaho. She and I met a few weeks ago to discuss what exactly running an outdoor wilderness school entails and how becoming a part of that community and being reacquainted with nature can affect you individually and affect all of us as a society in a greater whole. So come back December 1st, Janine Tidwell. See you then.